Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to uh, Christ Church of Ornogo for our Wednesday night programming. This is our Corrective Lenses series. Uh, my name is Michael DeFazio, and I am a member here at Christ Church of Ornogo, and also I have the privilege of serving as a professor at uh, Ozark Christian College, and right now the privilege of being a part of this series, Corrective Lenses. Now, I'll be teaching next week and sharing some thoughts with you on work, but today you have the pleasure again of hearing Chad talk about uh, this concept of worldview. And if you are new to this series or have kind of been following along, but this is your first time uh, to a Wednesday night programming, this is our second Wednesday night within it, let me tell you or remind you what we're doing in this series called Corrective Lenses. Why would we call it that? Well, because what we're talking about is paying close attention to the lenses that you see the world through. That's essentially what Chad taught us last week, that worldviews are all about, the way in which you see the world, and not just what you're looking at, but what you're looking through. And what we're talking about in this series is we always pick up habits from those around us uh, that we see through, and we want to make sure that the lenses that we're looking through aren't just the ways that the world has taught us to look at itself, but rather the ways that God's Word teaches us to look at everything. So that's kind of the idea behind what we're doing, and even more so than, in, than, in other, than at other times and in other series, this one is one where Sunday night, or Sunday morning and Wednesday night go hand in hand. So we're especially glad that you're here. We're especially glad to talk more about this concept of worldviews. A couple other things before I hand it over to Chad and we officially get started. You may have noticed on the screens that there is a phone number and that says you can text your questions about corrective lenses here. If when you first got, came in the room, you wrote the number down, you need to write it down again because we had one number off. And so we fixed that. And basically, at any point, like starting right now, you can text in a question to this phone number, and it's set up as, I don't know if you know Google, it's basically a Google phone number, and then we'll get uh, a, a notification with your question, and then we can, uh, we can answer that. We're going to do that in a couple of different ways. At a few times in our series, we're going to devote an entire evening, and at times even Sunday mornings this time, to uh, questions and answers. And some of those will come directly from the questions that you text in. Do also know that tonight, Chad's going to leave some time at the end of his teaching time, of his talk, so that questions that you send in about what we're talking about tonight, I'm going to get those uh, sent from the back over to me, and then I'm going to come up here and just ask him some of the questions that you have uh, right here. So we know that this is a larger room, and uh, some of you may not feel as comfortable asking questions out loud. Uh, No worries. We've provided you a means to do so. Text your questions in, whether they're about tonight's topic or something completely random, that's perfectly fine, and we'll save some time at the end of tonight to talk about those that are pertinent to today's topic. I will say that I'm extra excited tonight because I got a preview. Chad sent me his notes today of what we're going to be talking about. And when it comes to this world of worldviews, as you now know, if you were here last week or here on Sunday, this is some mind-boggling stuff. This is some sort of, I haven't thought this way since I was in school sort of thinking. And there, there's, there's, there's a challenge there to that. There's also some power there to that. And tonight, we're talking about what, for me, have always been some of the most practical aspects and relevant aspects of thinking about worldview. 
Chad's going to teach us how we always live from a certain story. He's going to help us see how the beliefs that we live, that we believe in, and the story that we live are connected to the decisions that we make. And he's going to help map out for us what our options are in terms of approaching the decisions that we make on an everyday basis. What are some of the different ways that we might engage the world, engage culture, think about the things happening around us from a truly Christian, truly biblically saturated worldview. So that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. Uh, Let me pray, and then I'm going to hand it over to Chad for our time of teaching. Father God, thanks so much for uh, being here. We acknowledge your presence in the room, and we pray that you would send your spirit in a specific way to sharpen our minds. Uh, God, it's the end of the middle of the week, and uh, that means that we may be tired, and yet I pray that you honor uh, the presence of every person here by giving them energy and attention and by sharpening their mind and helping them to engage and focus and uh, really to hear what you would have us to hear. We thank you for Chad and the time study that he's put in on these things and for the opportunity that we all have to share the fruits of that study. So we pray your blessing over our entire evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Everybody give Chad a hand. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, I'm glad to see uh, so many of you back this week and uh, so many new faces this week, too. Um, We're going to start tonight by doing um, a little thought exercise. Um, we, we did this, we, we started to do something related to this last week, um, but I wanted to be a little bit <clears throat> more specific and more intentional about it this week. Um, in, in talking about or reflecting on um, this concept of worldview, and, um, you know, which is uh, the full set of assumptions and beliefs uh, presuppositions that we bring with us and that um, affect us every moment of our lives, that inform our decisions, our priorities, our values, etc. Um, in reflecting on worldview, you know, we gave three metaphors for this. Uh, we talked about it in terms of a map. We talked about it in terms of corrective lenses. That was kind of the big emphasis on Sunday morning. Uh, on Sunday morning, in first service anyway, I added a metaphor of a belly button. Um, everybody has one, but we don't think about it. Um, I didn't include that in the second two services, though, um, uh, just because. I thought it was funny, though. Um, but I have a friend who's a doctor. I don't know if he's here tonight or not, but he, he's a doctor who, uh, who actually does concern himself with the belly button um, quite a bit uh, on various surgeries and procedures and stuff. And he said, you know, some of us actually do think about it quite a bit. Um, I'm like, well, you're weird. Um, uh, but we also, the, the other metaphor that we used was the metaphor of a story, or the, the, the image of a story. that we, Worldview is kind of the story that we find ourselves living in, the story that we find ourselves living out. Um, and so with that in mind, I think it's critically important that we don't just reflect on what are the worldviews of those around us? We need to spend some intentional time reflecting on what is our own worldview? What is the story that we are living out? And so you're going to do that here. I'm just going to give you a few minutes. I'm not going to give you a lot of time to do this because I have some other territory I want to cover tonight. But um, you see some space in your handout there. By the way, if you see some handouts, some blank handouts by you on the seat next to you, if those could kind of navigate towards the edge or towards the end, we're going to collect those and and, uh, reuse those. Um, So there's some space in your handout. Here's what I want you to do. This is an exercise that I do with uh, my students in one of my classes. Um, And it is an exercise designed 
to help clearly articulate and distinguish between those things which are critically important and those things which might be important in some contexts but aren't critically important to who we are. Does that make sense? Um, it's, it's an exercise designed to, uh, again, identify and distinguish between those things that are non-negotiable in my life and those things which are maybe important but, but not at the center. So, in only three sentences, I'm only going to give you three sentences to do this. I want you to write out in three sentences the most critical beliefs that you have about God. The most, and these are, again, these are absolutely non-negotiable, die upon the hill. Um, If I change these beliefs, I change who I am in my innermost being. What are, just give me three sentences, your most important beliefs about God. Or maybe expand a little bit uh, about just faith in general, what you believe in. Okay, is anyone brave enough to share their three sentences? Yes, Frank, I knew that you would be. I've only got two. Oh, all right. Jesus said I came to seek and save the law. Jesus said I came to fulfill the law and the prophets, not to destroy. Okay, not bad. Jesus-centered, can't go wrong with that. Anybody else? Yeah. Uh, Jesus is the Son of God, he died and rose again. Jesus is the Son of God, he died and rose again. I like it. Pretty good. Somebody else? Yeah. Uh, Faith is the core of anyone's life, no matter what their faith is in. Oh, faith is the core of everyone. Getting at this concept of worldview, that faith is, I think, at the core of every person's life, regardless of what God they, they believe in. Good. Somebody else? Yeah. Jesus is coming back. Just one sentence. That's all you need. In today's, in today's world, in today's culture, with the news going on in the world today, I think that that's a pretty, it's a pretty good um, thing to always keep in mind. God is still in control. Well, here's the way I kind of illustrate this with my students is that I will draw a, a target up on the board and there is a lot of grime and gunk on my iPad as I'm drawing this from my children. So hopefully this works okay. Um, but I, I'll draw a target on the board. And this target, um, I tell them, represents the sum total of everything that they believe in. So everything is on this target. Everything from your favorite NFL football team to, you know, beliefs about, you know, what you believe about your, your, your spouse, what you believe about your children. You know, personal beliefs are on there. Uh, Preferences are on there. Everything that you believe is on this target. And then I ask them the question, if everything you believe is on this target, what is at the, what's at the bullseye? What's at the bullseye? Bullseyes are necessarily small, right? Not a lot's going to fit at the bullseye. So what are the... Now, there's a lot of beliefs that are critically important, but maybe they're not right at the center. And I think that this is always a healthy exercise for us to engage in, just so in our own mind, we're able to distinguish that which is absolutely non-negotiable from other beliefs that might be important, but maybe not quite as non-negotiable. For me, um, it, it really comes down to two sentences for me. 
um, in this exercise. Um, the two sentences for me that are absolutely non-negotiable are, um, Jesus is risen. Okay, Jesus is risen. And then the second sentence is that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is risen and Jesus is Lord. For me, everything else in my worldview, everything else in my belief system, everything else in my life really hinges upon the truth of those two sentences, that Jesus is Lord and that Jesus has risen. Or you could frame it up in a little bit different way. If you want to take three different um, points or three different sentences to summarize our story, I think you could summarize it in uh, three words. Sorry for my penmanship. Um, Creation, fall, and then restoration. Because isn't this... At the end of the day, isn't this what our story is as, we're, as followers of God, as followers of Jesus? Our story, which I'm going to hash out in a little bit more detail in just a moment, but our story really falls upon these three points, that we believe God created the heavens and the earth, um, that he created uh, men and women in his, in his image, unique, special, um, endowed with dignity, we, we believe certain things about creation. We also believe, however, in the existence of evil, in the existence of sin. And, of course, um, t- tomorrow being September 11th is a good reminder of that. And some of, some of the issues going on in the, you know, the president tonight is giving a press conference about what is our strategy going to be towards ISIS and other things happening in the world right now. It's a good reminder of the fact that we do believe in the goodness of this world. But we also believe in the fallenness of this world as a result of sin. Um, And then thirdly, clearly as Christians, we're not hopeless. We don't, we don't, we're not in despair. We believe in ultimate restoration. That's, that's the story of the gospel, that God sent his son so that we can have hope, so that we can have liberation. And the story of the ministry, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus all fits into this overall story of hope, the story of restoration. I want you in the blank, in the second um, area on your notes, now that you've articulated some, some critical beliefs that you have, I think the next reasonable step that we have to take if we're going to live this examined life if we're going to think deeply about what we believe and why we believe it, I think the next reasonable step for us to take is the so what step. Or the, the, in philosophy, they talk about the implications of belief. That the test of any belief system, the test of any belief, is in its implications. It's in its logical implications. Um, so I'll just give you a for instance, Okay. Uh, Richard Dawkins, who is a name that might be familiar to some of you, probably not, not all, but some of you. Richard Dawkins is one of the most outspoken and, my personal opinion, obnoxious atheists in the world today. Um, and he is, he, he is as, um, he, he is as committed to his atheism as the most radically devout religious person is to their God or to their religion. I'll just put it that way. He is radically devoted to his atheism, so much so that he actively promotes um, uh, counter, 
conversions, conversions to atheism. Um, well, recently, Richard Dawkins got into some Twitter trouble, okay? Um, uh, <laughs> he didn't exactly know how, t- he didn't know how Twitter worked, okay, which is part of the problem. Um, he told a, a woman in the UK who was pregnant with um, a child that she had discovered was going to have Down syndrome, or at least they thought was going to have Down syndrome. And a woman, and this woman contacted him and asked him what was the ethical thing for her to do. And he told her that the, the only responsible action for her to take, the ethically responsible action for her to take, is to abort the child with Down syndrome. Um, and this was a reasonable, logical thing for all civilizations to do. Um, children with birth defects should be handled in this way, or pregnancies should be handled in this way. And of course, you can imagine the firestorm that this started. Uh, rightly so, correct? Um, I mean, it's just appalling, that sort of callousness, that sort of coldness. Uh, and people were posting pictures of their children who had Down syndrome, smiling and saying, you know, obviously just a horrible thing to say. However, what we need to realize is this is the logical implication of Richard Dawkins' beliefs. Richard Dawkins is an evolutionary biologist who believes as a matter of faith and as a matter of principle, who believes in the the doctrine of natural selection and survival of the fittest. And so it's the natural implication of his belief that you will terminate the pregnancies of, of less than capable human beings. For him, that makes sense. For him, that's logical. But of course, there's something within our souls that grates against that, right? There's something that we find appalling about that and evil about that. But he's living out the implications of his belief. And to me, it was a great illustration of what implications look like. Our beliefs have consequences, right? We live out, we act out the story that we're in. We act out our beliefs. So it's a good practice, it's a good discipline for us to to develop. What are the implications of our beliefs? If we believe in creation and the fall in the restoration... Um, if we believe in the resurrection, if we believe that Jesus is Lord, if we believe that God created the world and created everything good, um, you know, these, these core beliefs, what are the implications of that? So I want, you to, I want you to spend some time reflecting on that. I'll give you a couple minutes to just write out one or two implications, consequences of these core beliefs that you have. Okay, did you think through some implications of those? The, the consequences of the beliefs that you have. Let's, let's focus just on these three up here. And let me, let, me hear from you, let me hear from you guys on this. What we believe about creation. What are some implications of that belief? Just let me hear it. What are some implications? Yeah. We have value and, oh, I like that, and purpose. Yes. We have intrinsic value. Every person that you've ever met and that you ever will meet has intrinsic value. And so what does that say to the Richard Dawkinses of the world who would denigrate and demean individuals because of certain handicaps or, or disabilities that they might have? A Christian worldview rejects that position. A Christian worldview says, no, absolutely not. No matter who you are, you have intrinsic value. 
and therefore should be protected, um, especially the who, the weak, especially them. But I like the second part of it is purpose. Um, if we're made in the image of God, we have purpose in our lives, meaning in our lives. What else? What's another implication of creation? Oh, we are not our own. Who said that? Raise your hand. I like that. We're not our own. We, we were created by God and for God. We are not, oh, and this, this goes against our modern sensibilities. We are not the center of the universe. Um, I know that might come as a shock to some, but we're not. We are not the center of the universe. We are created by God and for God. We are not our own. I like that. What else? What are some implications? Uh, okay, we are, our will is subservient to his. Not my will, but your will be done. That, and I think that goes back to the purpose, too. Why were we created? What is the purpose um, that we have? What else? You know, science, have you ever thought about this? Um, Eastern civilizations, primarily like in uh, what we now call China, Eastern civilizations were far more advanced than Western civilizations uh, by almost a thousand years. Far more advanced. Have you ever wondered, though, why science did not originate in the Orient? Science originated in Western Europe. Have you ever wondered why that's so? If Eastern cultures were so much further advanced, even in technology, so much further advanced than Western cultures, why did science develop in the West? The answer to that is a worldview answer. It's because in, in the Western world, operating with Christian worldview assumptions, the, the belief was creation, the world around us, shows the glory of God. You can learn about God and also about yourself by studying the things that God has made. See, Christians have believed in the, in the goodness of creation. They believe in the orderliness of creation. And they believe that creation, and this is critical, creation is distinct from God. In Eastern worldviews, even, and this is still even true today, in Eastern worldviews, there's not this distinction between God and creation. Creation is God. And so there's a hesitancy to study it because it's mystified. It's enchanted that way. So there's a hesitancy to study it. But in the Western context, the Christian worldview actually opened the door to the study of science. And so today we hear this nonsense about how faith and science are opposed to each other, but that's exactly what it is, is nonsense. Because in its origin, science never would have developed if not for this Christian worldview in the nature of creation. Um, what about the fall? What are some implications of that? Okay, we're not just made in God's image. That doesn't just give us purpose and value. It also makes us moral creatures too. So God has um, expectations. I, I think that's the way you're, you put it. But God is righteous, God is holy, and we fall short of that standard. Okay, what else? Actions have consequences. They sure do. They certainly do. Genesis 3 shows us that. 
What else? There's a new show on TV, which I, I don't plan on watching, but it's an interesting concept for a show. It'll probably last like two episodes and then you get canceled. Um, but it's a show called Utopia. Have, have any of you seen commercials for this? Uh, they're running all Sunday during NFL games, Utopia. Um, it's basically a reality show. They put a bunch of people in a confined space and they basically have to create their own world. I don't know, their own utopia. And what's funny about that is what? You know exactly how it's going to end, right? Everybody knows exactly how it's going to end. How is it going to end? In absolute disaster. (laughs) It's going to be a train wreck. And the producers know this ahead of time. They know that they're not actually going to create this ideal society. It's going to be a train wreck. And that And the reason that they know that is because that's exactly what's happened in history time and time and time again. Every time we try to set a utopia, we end up worse than before. It ends up in unmitigated disaster. And and I think that, again, this is where our Christian worldview, the implications of it. We know that although we're made in the image of God, we also know that we're fallen. We know that we are prone to evil, that we are prone to selfishness. We, we desire to put ourselves at the center of the universe. Instead of being in the image of God, we consider ourselves to be God. And so any effort at man-made utopia upon the earth or man-made salvation, however you want to frame that up, we know is going to end up in disaster. In other words, one of the implications of this belief is all men and women are made in the image of God but we also should be realistic about the evil intentions in men's hearts. We shouldn't be surprised by that. We shouldn't be taken aback by that. Because what our worldview says is, no, we are made in the image of God, but we're broken. We're broken vessels. What about the third point, restoration? What do you mean, Frank? Frank? Okay. Okay. Every fact and everything that he said is going to happen has to happen. So this belief has some implications even on what we believe about the story of Scripture. And uh, I'm actually going to come back to that here in a second, Frank. What else? What are some other implications? Restoration. We believe in restoration. We believe in resurrection. Hope. I think that's, and I think that's the big word, right? I don't even know if we need to say anything more than that. We believe in hope. So even though if we stopped at the fall, we would end up where? In despair. Hopelessness. But that's not where our story ends. So we are are realistic about the fallenness of this world, but we don't despair. We don't give in to hopelessness. Because as Hebrews says, we have been freed from the slavery of the fear of death. Death has lost its sting. Um, Death has no victory. We now live our lives in hope. And frankly, we should be ambassadors of hope. Christians of all people should not look at the stories of the day, the news of the day, and panic. Christians of all people should not look at the events of their lives and despair. We should be people, ambassadors of hope. Realistic understanding the evil that lurks in the world and the evil that lurks in the human heart. We're realistic, but we're also hope-filled. 
And, and we, shouldn't, we, shouldn't have ex- we shouldn't have the exact same view of evil and brokenness of this world as maybe our non-Christian coworkers or our non-Christian neighbors. There should be something different. There should be different implications of our beliefs because of the resurrection, because of the victory of Jesus. Um, last thing on this, and I want to I move um, through this. I, I'm going to go through this rather quickly. Uh, I'll just warn you ahead of time. Some of you have seen me do this um, in other settings and in other classes. Um, but again, the whole, what we're focusing on, just let me r- hit the reset button. Here's what we're trying to do. If worldview is a story, we have to what? We have to know our own story, right? What is the story that we are living? What are those core beliefs and what are those implications of those beliefs? That's what I'm trying to do so far. Here's another way that I'm going to try to frame that up. We live a story, as Frank reminded us, we live a story that is shaped by the Bible. A story that is shaped by what we learn in God's Word. And so I think that it would be good for us to reflect on what is the story of Scripture, right? What is the overarching story of Scripture? The Bible's a big book. I don't know if you know that or not. It's a big book. There's a lot of stuff in there. And it's easy, I think, because the Bible is such a big book and because there's so much stuff in there, it's easy for us to forget sometimes or to miss altogether the overall story of Scripture and to just get lost along the way. Have you ever tried a Bible reading plan that started in January? Like you make this New Year's resolution. I'm going to read the Bible this year. going to do it. going to do it. Preacher told me it's good for me. Trust my preacher. going to do it. This year's the year. And get, we get through Genesis okay. Some weird stuff in Genesis. Crazy stuff in Genesis like R-rated stuff in Genesis. And we're, and we're like, oh, that's in the Bible. I didn't even know that. But we get through Genesis. Exodus kind of starts, you know, you got Moses, you got Egypt, Red Sea, you got some, some cool, awesome stuff happening in, in Exodus. But then Exodus kind of gets weird. Like you get all these measurements for the tabernacle and the, the garments, the robes that the priest is going to wear. And like, okay, I don't quite get it, but okay, it's the Bible. And then you get into Leviticus, and Leviticus is a law book. And, you know, Leviticus is actually critically important for the New Testament, but a lot of, a lot of us don't realize that, and we just kind of get lost in the laws. And then, so we, we get through Leviticus, and Leviticus, unfortunately, is where Bible reading plans go to die, a lot of them. But if you get through Leviticus, then you get to Numbers. The title of the book is Numbers. And it, it's true to its name, okay? Um, and then you get through Numbers, and then you get to Deuteronomy, and it's like, what do I do with this? And I know a lot of people, they just, they love the Bible and they love God, but they get kind of lost, right? Like, what, what is the overall story? How does all this fit in? And I want to give you, I'm going to keep this less than 10 minutes, okay? Uh, maybe even less than five minutes. We'll see how it goes. But I want to give you the entire story of the Bible and how it all fits together. So that, and here's the purpose, so that we can know our story. Okay? You with me? Tracking with me? All right, so on the space that I gave you, I want you to do this. I want you to draw a little hourglass shape. A little hourglass shape. And this is, this is the story of Scripture, this shape right here. This is the story of Scripture. And I'm just going to give you a few words to write into this shape. The first word up here at the top is 
is the word universal. Write that at the top. Universal. And this is the story of Genesis 1 through 11. Certain things happen at the very beginning of the Bible. Creation. The fall of man. Sin enters into the world. That's Genesis 3. There's a flood, Genesis 6. Um, There's even a a labeling or accounting of the nations, Genesis 10. There's the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11. These are all stories that take place on a universal scale. They're big stories. They're big stories, okay? That's the first word. Second word, and this is the big one. Whoops, what just happened? Okay, ignore that line. I don't know where that came from. Um, Second word is local. In my mind, one of the very most important chapters in the entire Bible is Genesis 12. Because in Genesis 12, God calls Abram and his wife Sarai. And he calls them to be a people for himself. And he says, I will bless all people through you. And he, go, he enters into, and this happens later on in Genesis chapter 15, but he enters into a sacred covenantal relationship, God does, with Abraham and his wife Sarah. And the rest of the Old Testament is the local story of the family of Abraham. It's the local story of the family of Abraham. It's a national story. And all of a sudden, certain parts of the Bible start to click in. They start to make sense. Like if you think about our nation, our nation is governed by laws. And so we need people in our society called lawyers. And their job is what? To understand the law, to interpret the law, to, in some cases, to prosecute the law. And they spend their lives and they spend their careers studying law texts, law books. Now, law books are not the type of books that you curl up next to a fire on a cold winter's night and just are entertained for hours at a time. Okay? They're not that kind of reading. But are they important? Of course they are. Of course they are. We wouldn't have a civil society without them. And so all of a sudden, books like Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy— they start to make sense because these are the law books for the nation of Israel. Every, every nation has law books. Every nation has history books, right? The history of a nation, the, the important stories that shape us as a nation. We have history books. I, I, we bring a, a, a friend with us, a neighbor boy with us to church every Wednesday night, and he was telling us about He learned about the assassination of Abraham Lincoln uh, at school this week, which happened in 1665, he proudly announced. And uh, so we had to kind of correct him on that, but he knew all the basics of the rest of the story. And, you know, we have these stories as a nation, right, that kind of shape who we are. Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, Civil War, World War II. You know, we we have these stories that kind of shape who we are as a nation. Israel is the same way. So you have the stories of the kings, men like David, Solomon. You have the stories of the prophets, Elijah, Elisha. You have these national stories that gave shape to a nation. And this is like First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. Um, these are history books. All nations have them. All nations also have po- uh, poetry and lyrics, right? Songs. Songs that shape us as a people. And Israel was no different. They had songs that shaped them as a people. And we find them in books like the the book of Psalms 
or the book of Proverbs, or even Song of Songs, which, which was such a sensual book, by the way, that Jewish boys weren't allowed to read it until after their bar mitzvah. Um, but it was important. These, these songs, these lyrics were important to them as a nation. The nation of Israel also had sermons. Sermons that shaped them as a people. Prophetic sermons. And that's what we find towards the end of the Old Testament. Books like Isaiah and Jeremiah, Micah, Nahum. These, all these books that sometimes just get neglected or cast aside. These are the sermons of a nation calling the people to repentance, calling the people to account, on occasion warning them about judgment that was coming their way. The entire Old Testament from Genesis 12 on is the local story of a nation. Next word, quickly. Next word is this. Whoops, that's, ignore that. Not a B. This is my first uh, run with this app here. Uh, Remnant, remnant. Um, The nation of Israel rejected God. Over and over again, they rejected God. And they were judged for rejecting God. But here's the thing about God. When God enters into a covenantal relationship with you, he will not turn his back on you. So when he, when he bound himself to the nation of Israel, even though they rejected him over and over and over and over and over again, God still remained faithful. And he promised that there would always be a faithful remnant, a part of the people. And so we have this story, the critical story at the end of the Old Testament, where Jerusalem is overrun and um, a remnant of the people are sent into exile, into a foreign land. And their hope, and this is reflected in books like Ezekiel, Nehemiah, Ezra, their hope is for final restoration back to Israel, that a remnant would someday return out of exile and to return to Jerusalem, return to the holy city. That's the, that's the third word, is remnant. At the very middle of this, I want you to write the answer that every Sunday school student knows. I want you to write the word Jesus. Because there is a thread running its way. Whoops. Not that. There we go. There is a thread winding its way throughout the entire Old Testament. A thread of hope, a thread of anticipation. Frank, you mentioned it earlier, Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, I came to what? To fulfill them. And there is this expectation. It starts all the way back in Genesis. But there is this expectation. Sometimes it shouts at you. Sometimes it just whispers at you. But there is this expectation that runs throughout the entire Old Testament that someone is coming. There is an anticipated Savior, an anointed one. Someone will come to finally fix what went wrong at the very beginning. And really, the national story of Israel was all about this ultimate restoration. The restoration that we have now seen fulfilled in Jesus. And here's the thing. This is how the first Christians, this is how they saw Jesus. They saw Jesus as the final fulfillment of all of their hopes and all of their expectations. Jesus was the anticipation of all of the Hebrew scriptures. He was the fulfillment of the law. He was the fulfillment of the prophets. It was all pointing to Jesus. So when you're reading your Old Testament, ultimately, you need to know, ultimately, this is pointing to Jesus. This is about Jesus. It's about salvation. It's about the Savior, the Messiah, who's going to come to save us. Now, what happens in the New Testament? 
Underneath Jesus, write the word remnant. Jesus in his own day had a small group of followers, a group of followers that could fit comfortably on this front row. I mean, small group, okay? Now, he spoke to larger groups from time to time, but his core group of disciples was very small during his lifetime. And so that's why I write the word remnant. In the Gospels, in the story of Jesus, it's a small group of followers. But of course, after the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the number of followers explodes, and so you could write down the word local next. Because the first Christians were largely Jewish, weren't they? Or not even largely, they were almost exclusively Jewish. The the gospel first went out in Jerusalem among the Jews. However, that's not where Scripture ends because that's not where Jesus ends. You can write down here at the very bottom, universal. Because even in the words of Jesus himself, there is this anticipation, this expectation, go and make disciples of all people, all people, teaching them, baptizing them. You will be my witnesses, he says in Acts chapter 1. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, but also in Judea and Samaria, and even unto the ends of the earth. And we see, as you look at the book of Acts, we see this starting to unfold, um, where strange, unanticipated people are responding to the gospel. Samaritans, an Ethiopian eunuch. And in Acts chapter 10, finally, the first non-Jewish, the first Gentile convert, Cornelius. And Peter, in trying to explain what has happened, Peter says to his other Christian uh, brothers, he says, I discovered something in Cornelius's living room. I discovered something about God, something that we should have known, but something that we've forgotten. I've discovered that God doesn't show favoritism. The gospel is for all people at all times. And throughout the rest of the New Testament, one of the big issues that you know, it motivates a book like Romans, it motivates a book like Ephesians, it motivates a book like Galatians. One of the big issues that they're trying to figure out is this relationship between Jew and Gentile. And Paul says, in Galatians chapter 3, Paul says that in Christ, there is no male or female, slave or free, or Jew or Gentile, because these boundaries that have kept us separate have been removed in Christ. So the promise to Abraham, let's go all the way back to Genesis 12. The promise to Abraham is all people will be blessed through you or through your family. That promise is realized in Jesus. And by the time we get to Revelation, the last book in the Bible, in Revelation chapter 7, we have a great multitude gathered before the throne of God, and they are from every tribe, language, people, and nation. A multitude that John says is too big to even count. And it's interesting that Revelation, Genesis 1 begins in a garden. If you look really closely at Revelation 21 and 22, and if you squint your eyes just a little bit, it looks an awful like the garden. An awful lot of like the garden. And so this is the story of Scripture. Now notice, it's not about me, right? I'm not the center of Scripture. The story of Jesus is. And so if I'm going to embody this worldview, if I'm going to live out this worldview, then what that means is I live out the gospel. 
I live out a story, a story of brokenness that leads to restoration. Not just for me, but for all people. I live a story that predates me by thousands of years, but I live out the implications of that same story today, and so do you. This is the story that we are in. We are in, and this story doesn't, it doesn't end with Revelation 21 and 22. We continue to live out this story of the gospel in our lives today. All right, so that's, I want to make a major transition now. Okay? Um, And I'm going to have to fly through this. I'm I'm going to go quickly through this. Because here's the question that, the, the second question that we have to deal with. Turn the page. Next page. Last week we said that there are two reasons we must talk about worldview. First of all, for our own discipleship, so that we're consistent. If you were there Sunday morning, I used this illustration about finding a place to put Jesus in your life. Uh, We need to talk about worldview so that we can be consistent in living out the implications of this story. Second reason is for wisdom as we engage the culture. So I want to talk about culture. It's one of my favorite things to talk about. I want to talk about culture and how we engage culture in the 25 minutes I have left or so. So let me first of all give you a definition, whoops, a definition for culture. Um, No, I'm not going to rate you now. I'll rate you later. Okay. Um, Okay. So here's, here's my best definition of culture. I gave you some blanks there to fill in. Culture is the concrete expression. The concrete expression of abstract ideas or values. So a concrete expression of abstract values for a particular group of people. Let me give you an illustration of this. When a young man falls in love with a young woman, how does he express that feeling? Now, the feeling of love that I feel for a young woman, this is what we call an abstract feeling. In other words, it's not something that you can reach out and grab, okay? It's just, I don't know. It's got, I see you and I like you and I have butterflies and I just don't, I, I like the symmetry of your face and you're pretty and I just, I don't know how do I express that. How do I take this abstract emotion and feeling that, that I have and how do I express that? Well, there's numerous ways that you can express that, right? The young man could buy a dozen roses, And all of a sudden now we have a concrete representation of an abstract feeling. Or the young man could write a poem if he's brave. He could write a poem. And now, again, all of a sudden we have a concrete expression of something that's abstract. The young man could take the young woman out for dinner. Something concrete to express a feeling, an emotion. This is what culture is. Culture is the expression, the living out of feelings, of values, of beliefs. So the things that we believe motivate what we create in culture. And I'm going to illustrate it here in a second again. Um, Now, I want to talk, though, about what culture does. That's the second thing, what culture does. Here's, Here's a few things that I want you to know that culture does. First thing is culture communicates. Culture communicates. So here's what I mean by that. 
you can tell a lot about a person or about a group of people by paying attention to the culture that they create, the types of things that they do, the types of things they create. It communicates something about their values, about their priorities. You can learn a lot about a person just by noticing the type of culture that they engage in. I'll come back to that. Secondly, culture orients. It orients us. I am, and I think I mentioned this last week, I'm a man, 36 years old, okay? When you grew up in the time that I grew up, and some of you are in the same boat as me, uh, Seinfeld, the show, was it, okay? It was it. Um, And so there's a good chance if you're a guy who's 36 years old, talking to another guy who's 36 years old, you could simply say, hey, remember that Seinfeld episode? And they will know exactly what you're talking about. They'll know exactly the reference point without even going into any greater detail. Or two guys, as a matter of fact, Michael and, uh, and Mark and I were in the back just beforehand, and we were having a conversation. The conversation was about football. The conversation was about, um, uh, well, and my brother, too, is there, uh, about the Bears' miserable failure on Sunday. And, but... Football is a cultural phenomenon, but it orients us. It helps us to kind of know where we are. It, help, it kind of brings us together. We have this shared cultural experience. If any of you ever, have ever traveled to another culture, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because if you spend a certain amount of time in another culture, you start to have um, cultural fatigue. It wears you out. Because why? Because it's disorienting. The food is different. The language is different. Everything's different. And so you start longing for, like, the golden arches, right? Or, like, weird stuff happens. Like, you know, like I'm in the Philippines, and you see, like, a Ford truck randomly driving down the road. You're like, oh, well, that's cool. Like, no, it's not cool. It's just just something from home. And it kind of reminds you, it reorients you to who you are. That's what culture does for us. It makes us feel at home. It makes us feel at home. Third thing, quickly. Uh, So it communicates, it orients, it reproduces. It reproduces. Culture spreads virally. This is how the fashion industry survives. One person wears something, somebody else sees it, and they're like, oh, I kind of like that. And so they start wearing the same thing. And before you know it, everybody is wearing that same thing. Um, Culture is reproductive that way. It multiplies. Lastly, it cultivates us. There's always this debate when, you see, when, when something scandalous happens, okay? Um, when something shocking happens. Uh, like a year ago when Miley Cyrus did what Miley Cyrus did. Um, and the, here's, the immediate, here's the immediate question. Well, does, is that an indication of where we are as a culture? Or is that affecting young women who will see that and that will cause them to act in a particular way? Let me tell you, the answer to that is both. That's what culture does. Culture both reflects, but it also cultivates us into something. Culture shapes us into who we are. So it both reflects and shapes. Um, And that's especially true of like movies, of TV, of uh, uh, music. It cultivates us into something. All right, so here's, here's here's the main thrust of what I'm getting at. What do we do about culture? Again, if we're going to engage the culture with our story, if we're going to engage the culture with our worldview, what do we do about culture? First thing, 
we, uh, whoops. Okay. Oh, shoot. First thing is we, uh, press the wrong button. We bridge it. We bridge culture. And uh, I gave you an attachment um, to your notes, which I'm not going to go into. Because there's, it's just, there's a lot of detail there. If you want to talk about it later, I'd be happy to talk to you about it. Um, but this is my effort, the last page in your notes. This is my effort to map out various Christian responses to culture. And there are three primary responses. One is hostility. Put our fists up and we just go to work. We just fight culture every chance we get. Hostility. Another response on the opposite extreme, but more similar than they sometimes realize, another response is accommodation. So instead of putting our fists up, we respond with open arms. Hey, I'm just like you. We're the same. So you got hostility, you got accommodation, and then the third response is isolation. Duck and run. Put put the walls up. Get as far behind this Christian subculture as we can and just... Um, just protect ourselves, isolation. And, the, and listen, there are various moments where each one of these responses is appropriate, okay? But I think overall, each one of these responses misses the mark biblically. Because what Scripture calls us to be is a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. And the job of a priest is not to be hostile to the people that he is being a priest to. The job of a priest is not to be accommodating, like, I'm just like you. No, there's something distinct about a priest too. And the job of a priest is certainly not to be isolated. You've got to be in the the midst of the people that you're um, being a priest to. A priest, if you're going to think about a royal priesthood, a priest is a bridge. A priest is distinct, is distinct, but engaged. A priest is distinct but engaged. So as you're living out your worldview and engaging the culture around you, I want you to think, I want you to think of that line, distinct but engaged. Distinct but engaged. I'm living out the story of the gospel, but I'm engaged with a culture that finds that story very strange, that, that doesn't quite understand that story. And so my, my job is to bridge that gap. Distinct but engaged. And I wish I had more time to go on that, um, but I really don't. Um, if you do have questions about that, I'd be happy to entertain questions later on. Uh, but that, that piece is really critical. That, because what I've found is, especially with Christian people that I come into contact with, it's very easy for me to know pretty quickly what is their philosophy towards culture. And some churches have a particular philosophy towards culture. Either hostile, accommodating, or isolation. And I said, and like I said, none of those three approaches by itself is sufficient, in my opinion. We are called to be priests. If you want a text for that, write down 1 Peter 2. Look that up later. 1 Peter 2, uh, specifically verses 9 through 12, where Peter outlines what I think is a great understanding of our approach to culture. We're a holy nation, but we also are a royal priesthood. So we're, we are distinct, but we're also engaged. Second thing, so we bridge it. We also read it. We read culture. In other words, and this is where I want to camp out just a few minutes. We read culture, and here's, here's, 
this is one of my favorite things to do in class. Students will take an item from culture and they'll just try to ask the question, what is the message here? What is the message? If culture communicates and it communicates a particular worldview, we, if we're going to be wise about engaging our culture, we need to know what's the message. Remember what culture is. Culture is the concrete expression, just like that young man holding the dozen roses, it's the concrete expression of something that is just kind of abstract. Beliefs, values, opinions. Concrete expression of something that we believe. So if that's true, then we can learn a lot about our world by paying attention to culture. So I put a few examples there. Things to think about. Uh, five, specifically. Let's, let's, uh, let's do it this way. I'm, I'm not going to give you very much time to do this. 30 seconds. I want you to turn to the people around you and just Twitter. Now, some of you don't know what Twitter is. That's okay. You're fine. You could use Facebook. Do you know what Facebook is? Um, social media. I want you to just take 30 seconds, turn to the people around you, and tell them in one sentence, what is the message or what are the values that are being communicated by something like Twitter? All right? Ready and go. Okay, time's up. Time's up. Now, let me ask you a question. Uh, we'll get to Twitter here in a second. But if I'm a missionary, okay, if I'm a missionary and I'm moving to, um, uh, I see the Greers here, I'm moving to Japan, okay, what's the very first thing that I have to do if I'm going to be a missionary in Japan? Probably. I've got to learn the language, right? And that's one of the hardest parts. I've got to learn the language. Now, we get that when we go from one, like, one nation to another nation. Like, we get that. If I want to reach these people with Jesus, i got to learn their language. You realize that the same holds true with your neighbor, right? If you want to have a thoughtful conversation with your neighbor about Jesus, and he doesn't know Jesus, or maybe he has false ideas about Jesus that might need correcting, the, one of the very first things that you're going to have to do is Learn to speak his language. Which means you've got to learn about his culture. You've got to learn about those things that are important to him, valuable to him, meaningful to him. So what's true about the missionary going to Japan is also true about you going next door. You've got to speak their cultural language. Because listen, here's the mistake that a lot of Christians make. We speak churchese, Christianese. We speak a, we speak a distinct language. You, you don't realize that perhaps, but you do. You speak with a dialect, with a Christian dialect. And it makes you sometimes very difficult to understand by, by people who don't speak that language. And so a part of bridging that gap is learning how to read their culture and learning, well, what this world that we're living in, what is valuable and meaningful to them. So let's talk about Twitter. What things or, or what can we learn about our society and about our culture from something like Twitter? Huh? Ignorant. <laughs> yes. I think that that's, there's a lot of silliness on Twitter, for sure. Yes. What else? Selfishness. You know, the thing about selfishness and ignorance, social media has made it possible for the first time in human history to broadcast your selfishness and your ignorance to the world. But what does that say about our culture? We have been what? We have been empowered. 
a cultural value that we have is self-empowerment. I deal with this every day among college students, among millennial college students especially, who grew up in the age of Facebook, who grew up in the age of Twitter, who grew up in the age of blogs, who have been empowered to speak their mind on any and everything. And because they've been empowered in that way, empowerment gives a false sense of wisdom a lot of times too. Um, But we have this cultural ideal of personal empowerment. And oftentimes very self-centered. I mean, it's the world of the selfie. Uh, Narcissism. We talked about that last week, didn't we, Chris? I think social media in general breeds or or at least encourages the expression of self-centered, a narcissistic worldview. Because it's, it's one of the ironies of social media. We call it social media. But really, so many people engage with social media simply to be seen, um, to be noticed, um, to present oftentimes a very filtered and a very false view of themselves. And social media used appropriately is always filtered, right? Like you only tweet or you only put Facebook highlights of the best things or maybe the very worst things. But it's, it's all an edited or filtered life. Which speaks to me, I think that speaks to another cultural value, the cultural value of fakeness, to be honest. That we live in a very plastic society. And we, we, we give authenticity lip service. But at the end of the day, I'm not sure how authentic our society really is. We are an extremely plastic society who is overly concerned about putting on certain appearances, appearing a certain way, appearing successful, appearing to be a great dad or a great mom. Um, So social media gives us the power to put on those appearances. Let's move on in the interest of time. Uh, What about the interstate highway system? Have you ever thought about this? Uh, This is a cultural peculiarity. Uh, Talking to a pastor in the Philippines one time, he came up to me, and he, he, uh, he said, I want to talk to you about America. I said, okay, what do you want to know? He said, I have two questions for you. First question is, have you ever been to the state of Montana? I said, yeah, a few times. <laughs> Why do you ask? He's like, I have a hard time imagining the state of Montana. Have you ever thought about how weird Montana is? They... These are the things I think about. Um, that you could go to a place, stand in the, in the middle of a field, and literally see no living human being anywhere on the horizon. For most people around the world, that is a completely foreign experience. He also wanted to know about the interstate highway system. Because in the Philippines, getting anywhere is just a pain in the rear end. And so the notion that you could get in a car and a few hours later be in a location hundreds of miles away blew his mind. Okay? So turn to the person next to you really quickly. Talk about what, what does the interstate highway system communicate about our culture? <laughs> Michael. Michael. Are there any questions? There's one. Okay. Okay. 
Okay, so what does the interstate highway system tell you about the culture you live in? Why do you say road rage? I'm, I'm always chilled out on the highway, Frank. What's going on with you? Well, that's not the interstate. What do roundabouts say about our culture, Frank? <laughs> oh, man. I say the more roundabouts, the better. <laughs> what, what do the interstates say about our, uh, about our culture? What do we value? Okay, what do, why do you say impatience? Would you say that one of our key cultural values is efficiency, right? Like we get really anxious when things aren't efficient. Um, We want things done and we want it done right away. And I think that's even reflected in our interstate system. I want to get to point A to point B and I don't want no lollygagging, okay? And by the way, I want you to build me some nice rest stops along the way so I don't have to go to the hassle of getting all the way off the highway. I want to be able to do my business, get back in my car and go, okay? What else? What does it show? Huh? Somebody said it. I heard it. Freedom. Don't you think it's a cultural value that we have of freedom? How does the interstate reflect that? Well, I go when I want, where I want, how I want. And oftentimes as fast as I want. I think that the interstate shows this cultural value that we have of public transportation. You kidding me? I have my own wheels. I have my own car. Thank you very much. I'll go when I, I'll pay the price of gas. I don't care because I want the freedom to go when I want, how I want, where I want. Um, what else? There's another really important one. From one place to another. So it keeps us connected for sure. Keeps us connected, which in a country as big as ours is important. Uh-huh. If we, and if we didn't have it, we'd be in a lot of trouble. But I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of the, the value of individualism. Doesn't the interstate kind of, doesn't it feed into this value that we have as individuals? Again, it's related to freedom, but I want to do it when I want, how I want, on my terms. All right, we're, we're almost out of time. Um, I, uh, I want to do just maybe one more. How about the Avengers? Did you see the Avengers movie? Anybody see it? Or any of these comic book, like Marvel movies, Captain America, um, What do these superhero movies say about us as a culture? All right? Again, just really quickly talk to each other about that. All right, what do they say? What do they say? Frank, you're a cynic. (laughs) Let somebody else take the responsibility. Okay, what else? Superpower. What do you mean, Andy? We have kind of a heightened view of ourselves, right? Like we can take care of any problem that comes our way, whether it's alien or terrestrial, we can take care of it. Just if we have enough technology, if we have enough chemistry, we 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 can do it. What else? That's right. I think we love superhero movies probably for a lot of reasons. We like to see things blow up. But, but we also, we want, man, we want somebody to win. 
We want good to win. We want evil to be defeated. We want somebody to win. We want to be saved, right? I mean, and just on a more serious note, you know, when you think about people being persecuted around the world, you know what my first impulse is as an American Christian? Like I'm thinking what I would like Iron Man to do to these guys, you know? Like we want vengeance. We want justice. We want a hero to save us. I think there's a messianic tendency to a lot of these superhero movies that shows, I think one of the things that this shows about our culture is that we do long for a Messiah. We do long for a Savior. Now, Jesus has always been a disappointing Messiah to those who have longed for the Incredible Hulk. Did you catch what I said? Jesus has always been, because the cross is a lot different than Iron Man. And so this is where our story diverges from the story of culture. Now, I'm still very entertained by these movies. I, I like these movies. But I recognize that these movies are showing something about my culture. We long for salvation. We long for a Savior. But this is the type of Savior that they want. They want a Savior that's going to bring vengeance, going to bring justice, going to bring violence. And I find that a lot of times... My Savior, the Messiah, he saves me more thoroughly and more completely than any avenger ever could. But he saves me through the sacrifice of the cross and the victory of the resurrection. And here, we've got to be careful, right, that we don't buy into the story of culture and neglect the story of the cross. Last thing really quickly. So we bridge culture, we read it, lastly we create it. We create culture. And here's what I mean by that. Let's circle around to where we started. We live out the implications of what, our, of what we believe. How do we create culture? We create culture as we live our lives every day consistently to the gospel story. So whether you're a banker, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a doctor, whether you're a construction worker, whether you're a nurse, you create gospel culture as you live out the story of the gospel in your lives, as a father, as a mother, as a grandfather, as a grandmother, you create culture. I'm not necessarily sitting, talking about sitting down and painting a picture or composing a song, although all those things are important too. But you realize the things that you do with your hands every day, and, My- and Michael's going to talk about work next week, right? This is all a part of creating culture. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is, the culture that I'm creating... Does it tell a gospel story? Do I live out the implications of my beliefs? Michael had a question from the audience, I think. Um, We had a number of questions come in. Thank you for those. Many of those were just sort of general questions, and we look forward to answering those at our Q&A time. But one specifically I thought would be a great opportunity for you to speak to tonight, and I'll probably cut you off, so keep your answer short. Here was the question. When you were talking about how our beliefs um, have implications in our lives. So creation is the belief this person mentioned. And the implication that you talked about was everybody's valuable. Yeah. So when you're helping, so, so the question was, what do you do with the fact that some people are evil? And here's the context mm-hmm. of the question. You're helping, you're helping someone, you're trying to talk to someone who's been hurt by another person. Yeah. So how do you help the hurt person reflect on their situation properly even though you know that the person who was evil is also made in the image of God and therefore is valuable? That's the question. A couple minutes. Jeez. Or a minute if you can. <laughs> That's a great question. That's a great question. Well, I mean, 
that whole situation, um, that okay, whole... Okay, I'm going to have to... I'm just kidding. <laughs> First of all, that whole situation really is an exercise of the Christian worldview. So someone hurts me, and I'm now left to pick up the pieces. I'm left to deal with it. There's... My beliefs as a Christian person are informing that entire situation. First of all, I, I acknowledge... A Christian worldview acknowledges evil when it sees it. We, and we shouldn't be hesitant or shy about that. If you've been hurt, it's evil. It's wrong. We shouldn't be hesitant or shy about acknowledging that reality. But at the same time, and this is where it gets painful and where it gets uncomfortable for us, at the same time, even though that evil has been committed, what the story of the gospel also tells us is we're all broken. We're all evil. And this doesn't excuse what happened to you. It doesn't excuse it. But it does remind us of this fundamental truth that even this person who created the, or who, who perpetrated this great act of evil, even that person is created in the image of God, loved by God, and a target of redemption from God. Now, that doesn't necessarily take away the sting. The evil has still been committed. But we can acknowledge, or we can acknowledge it within the framework of uh, God's creation and God's redemption, which leads me then to this third point. And we talked about creation, fall, and restoration. Within the context, within the framework of that conversation, there needs to be some discussion about the essential nature of forgiveness. Forgiveness does not come naturally to really any of us, okay? Um, This is why forgiveness, the word for forgiveness in the New Testament is related to the word grace. It's because it's a gift, it's a free gift that doesn't come naturally on my own accord. I need, in that moment, I need to seek God's wisdom and God's power to learn to forgive as I myself have been forgiven because that's critical to my worldview as a Christian. My worldview as a Christian just simply does not make sense if it's not including the forgiveness offered in Jesus Christ to me and also to a lot of other people that I might find appalling. So, and again, that doesn't excuse what's, do- what's been done wrong to you. It doesn't mean that you have to go and, and enter into that relationship again. And I, that's not what I'm saying. But it, what I am saying, I think, what I am saying is, what the gospel teaches us is it, is it teaches us the essential nature of forgiveness. And forgiveness, and I always I, I need to add this tagline, forgiveness is a discipline learned over time. It, it, it's not something that most people find they can naturally do just like that. It's something prayerfully that we develop over time. And so you may find it very difficult to forgive that person, and that's fine, and that's understandable. But I would just encourage you to pray for the wisdom, to pray for the strength, to learn how to let that go and how to offer that forgiveness. Great answer. Thank you for that. And again, thank you guys for the questions. Continue sending those in. Uh, what we're hearing tonight is, this, the, is, is basically the fact that there's a lot that's true about us that we don't necessarily think about. And I'm grateful to Chad for helping us think about it. Real quickly, I know you need to go uh, to get out of here and or, and or to get your kids, hopefully to get your kids before you get out of here. Um, <laughs> 
want you to know what's coming. We're going to continue this series on Sunday with a message about the purpose of humanity. What are we here for uh, within God's design? And then back here next week, I'm going to be talking, as, as Chad said, about this idea of how does work fit into our Christian worldview? How do we, as, as Christians, think distinctively about the part of our lives that we call work? So we look forward to continuing uh, our conversations together, and we will see you this weekend. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cochurch.com.